Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. We're having a happy hour today on Trending. It's great to be with you. What's getting in the way of your happiness? Father Robert Spitzer is here to take your question. Today the topic is finding happiness through beauty. Where do you find happiness? How do you find it? The where and the how I think is a key question that many people are asking. And unless we intentionally seek to have joy, peace, and God in our lives, well, we won't have any of those things or God himself in our lives. So Father Robert Spitzer is the founder of the Magis Center. He's the author of many books, including an excellent book called Finding True Happiness. So he's an expert in the area of happiness. And I want to dive into after having read your book, Father Spitzer, one of the areas that always stands out is the idea of beauty, especially in our modern culture where beauty standards are either very relativistic or based on trends. My question for you is, how do we cultivate experiencing true beauty in our lives and the culture we're in? Oh, first, uh, you know, there's a wonderful text from Plato's Symposium. And if you ever had a chance to read that as an undergraduate. But anyway, in there, he kind of goes up this, what we might call hierarchy of beauty. So um, you know, he's not a Christian, he, so his view of transcendent beauty is going to be a little bit limited here, but he's got the right idea. And so he basically says, look, of course there are the beauties of artistic forms, so visible forms. Mountains are beautiful, oceans are beautiful, the human body is beautiful. And he goes on you know, to, to describe all these various visual beauties. And then he, you know, music, of course, the Greeks, you, you know, the harmonies and melodies and Pythagoreans and Plato is right in the mix of all of these guys. And, and basically he saw how, you know, complex music could be in its beauty. And the more complex it got, mm. um, you know, the more, you know, harmonies were added in, the more instrumentation was added in, how just the beauty became, as he puts it, transformed into something like glory, uh, you know, almost Herrlichkeit, right, in German, you know, this idea there's something uh, effusive about this, something majestic about this, indeed pointing to the divine. And now, you know, you could even combine all these forms. So you could go, for example, into a, a beautiful church. And it, why has the Catholic Church always been so concerned with beauty? Beauty of architecture, beauty of music, beauty of, uh, you know, the various symbols and the altar and the, all the various things that are around, the artistic beauty, the stained glass windows. You, you look at all of it, and Why? Because of course, swirling around in the in in you know the beauty, we connect with it in this way that almost grips us, that kind of makes us, as they say, ecstasy, right? Come out of ourselves. 
something begins to happen and you go into a specific kind of beauty that's pointing upwards, let's say, or that's got this stained glass window that has a kind of a, a mysticalness uh, uh, to it coming through the, the beauty of the, the light, you know, that, that's just piercing these windows and it just so remarkable to behold, um, you know, that, that emanate sort of the holiness of these saints um, or Christ, who, uh, you know, our lady who's portrayed in the windows. And we call this more, uh, as Plato might call it, glorious or majestic beauty. But it's all centered on Christ. Yes, Christ, um, um, you know, has this human form there, but there's something much more than that, um, you know, that's, the, you know, in the church. Uh, his divinity is brought out in you know just the arching upward of the architecture the or the bells uh that are going off or uh, perhaps there's liturgical music going on uh that that brings out that glory you know the uh you know almost these mozart symphonic notes and and things of that nature or the organ um uh you know uh, sonatas and uh, all of their grandeur but you know you know it's it's literally god's grandeur is what's trying to be portrayed there. But notice what's going on in all of it. It's bringing us out of ourselves. It's bringing us above ourselves. It's calling us to something which is, you know, quite beyond. And, of course, Plato just keeps going, you know, he says, oh, you know, it's not just um, in all of these visual forms and musical forms which can be put together in such ways that it's almost like a, a spiritual kind of ecstasy in a way. But he says, no, you know, there's, there's higher levels of beauty. You know, mathematics can be very beautiful. Now, I know if you hated mathematics as a kid or something, you might not think that's true. But in point of fact, if you really get into mathematics, when you begin to see such complex symmetries and how everything comes together and the various equalities, um, there's just something about mathematics that really quite literally points to the glory of God, the in, not just the intelligence of God, but the right. beauty of God. He loves mm -hmm. symmetry. And, and order. So again, yeah. Mm -hmm. The significance of order. Uh, would you yeah. correlate order with beauty? And if so, is that part of the reason why in such a disordered culture we live in today, uh, morally, but not just morally, even just the way things function today, do you think that's maybe part of the reason why we're struggling with happiness as a culture because beauty does play a role in happiness and that does include order? Well, I do think order is a big part of it, and I think harmony is a big a part of it, and we also live in a disharmonious society. But what, you know, what Plato says at the end is there's the beauty of the good. And what he means by that is when you think about good deeds, right? So he's talking about justice. He says, you know, is justice something beautiful? And he goes, yes, it's, it's the, the, you know, the highest uh, form of, of beauty besides, you know, beauty itself uh, in the divine. So, so again, the idea of you know, if we're a disordered society, if we're a disharmonious society, if we're an unjust society, if we're a society that, that really is going to revel in not what is high-minded, what is high-hearted, but in what is low-hearted and low-minded low and even base, 
you know, um, you can expect that, oh, you might have a kind of a beauty on the base level, all right. You know, um, there's no question about that. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it will not be a lasting beauty. It will not be the kind of beauty that stays with you. It won't be that kind of beauty that, you know, effaces majesty and uh, glory and worship and bowing down. You know, there's something that's just so much so mysterious and so great, you know, that comes out of us. Mm -hmm. And if we don't want order, if we don't want to look at even the good, if we don't want the, the, the spiritual beauties of just seeing, for example, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, a, a good, uh, an episode where somebody loves somebody in some kind of a very self-sacrificial or dignified or wonderful way, you know, there's a beauty there. I just remember, you know, once, you know, there was a, during a, one of the masses, I was uh, saying, uh, you know, a man came in who was obviously quite, uh, you know, a, I had felt he was on the, you know, uh, you know, uh, sh- on the street, obviously, uh, probably for days, if not weeks on end, mm-hmm. um, you know, and of course, uh, a very um, pungent or- odor was coming mm-hmm. out of him and so forth. And he went into the back of the church and he just stayed there. And this woman who was very elegantly dressed, who was sitting right in front of him, went right into his pew took out a little missalette and began showing him right next to him, you know, what was going on in this mass as if, you know, she had known him all her life. And to me, to look upon that scene and the sense of love that she had for this person who was down and out, that's beautiful, but it's Mm -hmm. spiritual beauty, but it's not just the visible form beauty. It is the beauty of the good, the beauty of Christ's form of what we might call caritas or what we might call agape love, where you begin to see, oh, you know, this is truly itself beautiful. It's like Christ's utterance, right, when that little widow comes and puts in the, uh, uh, the, the pittance uh, mm-hmm. into the treasury, and that strikes him so hard, you know, that it's all she has to give. That it just it's such an act of self-sacrifice. It's beautiful, but it's beautiful in the sense of the good, beautiful mm-hmm. in the sense of justice, not just in the sense of a visual form or even the grandeur mm-hmm. of great music. For Christ, okay. that little act of love was more beautiful than a Brahms symphony played in St. Mm-hmm. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna mm-hmm. on one of the best organs that was ever made in the world and one of the most stained glass perfect cathedrals you could possibly imagine and there the little widow is for those who have eyes to see Mm -hmm. emanating a beauty of god and you meant you refer to it as a spiritual beauty you're pointing out there are different types of beauty you gave the example of math Mm -hmm. how math can be beautiful to someone and is Mm -hmm. in its order and in Mm -hmm. what it can function and what it can accomplish and how it can even direct us toward god but that story you just shared of the woman who was able, even in the midst of the homelessness, the unknown, the stench, as you said, was able to go up and open that missile. It reminds me of something that you said in your book where you talk about how 
um, a beauty of mind and beauty of heart are these higher forms of beauty. And even Plato says that where he actually refers to the beauty of mind is more honorable, he says, than the beauty of the outward form. And if you could just tease that out a little bit more, because we don't get this as a culture to us. What is aesthetic is what is most beautiful. And for example, you know, to go into a messy house to some might be the biggest chaos and not beautiful, but then to (sighs) see, you know, and I think there's a lot of, I talked about this on Friday on the show. There's a lot of like this Pinterest aesthetic social media culture where everything has to look so beautiful, but not everyone's in a season of life with kids or with memes. And yeah, like that's kind of the level that we're comparing and living on when the beauty you're talking about is so rich and transcendent and it enters into the person of the heart and mind. So if you could speak a little bit more to that. Sure. In other words, I I think, you know, the theological aesthetic, you know, um, uh, has about three different levels um, and and um, it means just like a spiritual beauty. Uh, that's a fancy way of saying spiritual beauty, theological aesthetic. But what it really there's about three levels of it. Uh, one of them is, you know, when you fall in love with God in in your religion, and and you know you want that that takes some doing, right? You you have to be praying. You have to. Uh, you know, have faith and go to the sacraments, try to follow the teachings of Jesus. But as you do these things, you will fall more and more in love with Christ, more and more in love with God the Father, more in love with the Holy Spirit and with Mary. And as this relationship grows and you begin to see just how, you know, magnificent they are, not just magnificent because they are glorious, oh yes, and they are, you know, um, well, with, uh, Mary's not infinite power, but God is, and, and she's brought into that glory uh, for sure by uh, her son and her own glorification. But those things are great, and they're wonderful to behold. But even more still is to see the simplicity and humility of Mary, which reflects the simplicity and humility of her son, and then you can get into that sort of mystical moment, right, where you begin to see that the love of God is like the father of the prodigal son. You, you, if you really know that parable, there's a beauty uh, in his love that is so deep. It's not the grandeur kind of thing, um, mm-hmm. though he's that too, but, you know, it's, it's recognizing, oh my gosh, you know, he, he can have everything, do everything. And what does he do? He cares about us. He, he kind of, um, you know, spends himself, you know, trying to get the likes of us into heaven. And each and every one of us he cares about. And each and every one of us is like his own child. And each and every one of us is, you know, struggling with this mess and that mess and every other thing. And yet he is all the time at work through his own spirit trying to pull us upward there's a beauty there too and there's a beauty you know too in as um you know uh, one might say just in the form of you know prayer um you know where you know it's no longer just a, simply being drawn in by a visual form but when one looks at for example the sacred heart or one, you know, a, a picture of the Sacred Heart, I mean, or one looks at a crucifix, what could be visually more upsetting, if I can put it that way, yet at the same time, the love that is emanating off the cross 
for those who have eyes to see mm-hmm. that, you know, that spiritual beauty, all of a sudden you're like St. Teresa of Avila, to gaze upon the heart of the one who died for me and would do anything for me to bring me into the kingdom and to see his sufferings moves her so deeply that, you know, basically she she goes into ecstasy, basically. Mm-hmm. And that is a beauty that is a billion times told lovelier than anything we could conjure up visually. Uh, St. Teresa describes it herself. She says, you know, when these things happen to me, when the Lord graces me with this kind of awareness of the depth of his love, I'm cat- catapulted into a joy that is so you know, overwhelming mm-hmm. that I feel mm-hmm. felt like I was walking around in a stupor, you mm-hmm. know, and people would look at me and, you know, they would be dumbfounded, <laughs> you know, because I, I couldn't, you know, attract them. I was literally out of myself in joy. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, because, you know, she wrote such things, Bernini uh, produced this very beautiful, beautiful. statue of her. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen it um, there in Rome. Uh, you know, St. Teresa of Avila in Ecstasy. Yes. And oh, it's right beautiful. on the mark marker. Mm-hmm. But it's only the visual form of St. Teresa on the outside. Imagine if we could see her on the inside with that look in her eyes and just wrapped up and swept up in the love of God. Boy, I'll mm. tell you, now that'd be some kind of beauty. And, and uh, it speaks yeah. to how we allow ourselves to be affected by beauty. And it's yes. not simply on an emotional state. Mm-hmm. And maybe you can speak to that because that's the challenge is we live in such a rapid culture. We're quick paced, easily distracted. And you point to the example of St. Teresa's Ecstasy, Bernini's beautiful sculpture. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing it in person, I actually wrote a paper on it uh-huh. in college. And oh, I've wow. always been taken by this statue, but it points to something you discuss in your book on happiness about how we have to be affected by those things. So speak to the difference of being affected by something, but not strictly on an emotional level and maybe tie it to St. Teresa of Avila's ecstasy. Right. Well, you know, there's two things about Christian mystics. Uh, The first uh, thing is when um, the Christian mystic, you know, um, uh, is connected to God, the beauty that they're perceiving is in the beauty of God. And, of course, the first thing Teresa says is, this is not just simply to give us consolation or joy. That beauty is transforming us. As we sit there and we are in love with God, and He is filling us with His love, it is literally talking us out of our own ego. It is literally transforming us on the spot. I hate to be so abstract about this, but what she's trying to say is, as you're sitting there in prayer, you think, oh my gosh, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not doing anything here, but God is doing all the work, all right, but he's transforming you, and when you put in the work to be in that kind of a prayer relationship, I can assure you um, that God will uh, reward you, not just with the consolation, but he'll mm-hmm. transform yes. you, he'll lead you, so that you'll do what? You'll go back as they said, Christian mystics always go back to the community. They're always trying to lead people ever closer to God. They're not just taking the beauty inwardly in order to get out of the world. They're going back into the world 
to lead others mm-hmm. to the beauty that they perceive, not only in the statue, not only in the mm-hmm. church architecture, but in the sacrament, the Holy Eucharist itself, and of course, in the very connection with God in prayer and the ecstasy that comes therefrom. And mm-hmm. that's the beauty mm-hmm. that um, really Christianity has brought to perfection. No other religion wow. has ever done so. And a beauty, and it, it points out beauty isn't simply for our feeling. It literally transforms us. It elevates the mind, it elevates the heart. It inspires the action for good. And this is why beauty is transcendent. Beauty can take us to God, but we have to take that next step. As you discuss in your book, Finding True Happiness. I'll be right back with Father Robert Spitzer here on Trending. What's getting in the way of your happiness? Ask Father Spitzer here on Trending now. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. It's happy hour today on Trending. Joining me is Father Robert Spitzer. He wrote the book, Finding True Happiness, which makes him an expert in happiness. So if you have a question, the number is 888 914 9149. And that's our toll-free line. It's sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters Life Insurance. If you have a question, we're happy to take it. You can send it on social media. Put a question box up there, especially on Instagram. Just follow me anywhere at Timmery, T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E, and ask a question. Or hey, you can send me an email. Just email me at trending at relevantradio.com. Okay, first question here, Father Spitzer, is from Robert. His question is, why do children and babies enjoy everything, yet adults only find joy in a few things? And is there a way to ever get back to that childlike wonder and happiness? Well, children, um, uh, you know, if you look at those Piaget studies, they don't enjoy everything. Uh, They can definitely have their snits. Uh, They can definitely turn up their... Um, noses at castor oil and uh, so forth and so on. They uh, they uh, definitely have their moments. However, you are right. They have a spontaneous joy. It's almost like children are built for delight, and they're built mm-hmm. for wonder. And that's why Christ uses them as you know this example. If you're gonna you know um, get into heaven, you've got to become like one of these little children. Well, he didn't mean that's to say lose your education and become immature. What Christ meant was that there's something about seeing wonder, uh, something wonderful, and being fascinated by it. Something, you know, that, you know, I remember once, you know, my father, uh, you know, a wasp had died, and my father, you know, uh, picked it up with a little tweezer thing, and we began to examine it. And I began to see all the little crevices (coughs) in his neck (coughs) and all the various things you know, that he was <clears throat> so beautifully put together with the wings, <laughs> sorry, <clears throat> with wings and so forth and mm-hmm. so on. And I looked at all of these things mm-hmm. and, and, um, and I began to say, you know, gosh, dad, this is like, wow, it's, you know, it's so well put together and mm-hmm. that's a, a brilliant piece of engineering. <laughs> and of course, you know, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was just like it, it, I was in a state of admiration and wonder yes. over a bee, you know, a wasp, basically. Right. And and uh, 
I think that's the thing that kids have today. You know, today we look at it and go, well, well science has yeah. described all the parts of the bees, blah, 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 and you fail to see the forest through, uh, uh, you fail to see the trees through the forest because you, mm-hmm. you know, you, you don't even uh, uh, see, uh, uh, you know, um, skip the forest, skip the tree. You know, you don't see anything. You're, you're basically thinking, well, we've done it all already, and there's nothing mysterious here, but it is. It's utterly mysterious. It's so well put together. You can't even believe, you know, how beautifully everything fits to become mm-hmm. this being that does what it is meant to do. And uh, I think it's, you know, uh, uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, you know, when he has that great, you know, line, he says, each one does, each one uh, uh, tells what each one was meant to do. And he's kind of going on uh, uh, to sort of describe, you know, um, you know, the beauty that is out there. It's just meant to do something, and it's perfectly constructed to do what it was meant to do. What you're saying uh, reminds me of how important curiosity still is. Like, children have so much curiosity. And just a few minutes before the show, my daughter climbed all around our yard. And again, she's only crawling. And she was in the pine needle. She was in the grass. And I remember my husband telling me, I think a few months ago, he said that he had seen research that when babies laugh, that they often laugh when they're learning something. And that's why they're laughing. And I thought that was fascinating because it made Uh me think that connecting this to happiness and finding that childlike joy and sense of awe and everything, that perhaps we need to rekindle a sense of wonder and learning in order to increase our happiness. Oh, no, it's absolutely the case. I mean, uh, wonder is a a huge component of happiness and just being fascinated by something or just exclaiming, you know, this is, this is great. Here's a God moment or what does, uh, 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 Teresa Tamio call it a God in, um, uh, incidents. And, uh, you know, that, that, you know, you just are fast. You can see God's protecting hand, inspiring hand and guiding hand. And that's just lovely to behold. And you just are struck with wonder. I remember once, you know, my nieces were giving me the old quiz, you know, uncle Bobby, why is this? You know, I'd say, well, cause of this. Well, why is that? Well, cause of this. And so finally you get to the highest modes of quantum theory and they're still going, you know, they're like, you have to finally say time out, you know, I have nowhere else to go, but they are, they just love it. They want to know everything about everything and they, they'll just keep going so long as you'll keep telling them. And uh, they, they sort of don't run out of psychic energy. But anyway, the long and short of it is I do think that God is, made us that way. And if we still maintain that sense of spontaneity, and wonder and delight that we can just, you know, delight at a baby for just being a baby. Uh, you know, we can delight at somebody zooming into a room and being so happy and breathless, you know, or we can, you know, uh, you know, delight and, you know, we, we don't have to be sad and serious all the time. We can mm-hmm. just, uh, you know what I mean, you know, yes. my friends and right. we're just, uh, they all have delightful idiosyncrasies. It's just great to be in their midst. I have more um, questions coming in. I want to dive into another sure. one of these. Taking Fire. a different different um, turn, Frank wrote, and my question is, how do I approach close romantic and non-romantic relationships without investing all my happiness in one person? I'd like to be emotionally independent in and out of relationships, but it seems my default is to rely on someone else. Can you speak to this question of dependency for happiness? Well, you know, um, there is dependency um, that's part of a good 
what we call emotionally intimate relationship. And so, um, to be honest, um, you you know, there there it's a, it's a two way street. You don't want to you know be codependent, uh, you know, in that sense. But what you want to do is is um, you know to cultivate a relationship where. I can rely on on the, uh, this person for things I need, but that they can rely on me for the things that they need, and that there's you know time you know even self sacrifice uh, that's committed uh, to the person. And I don't think you have to you know to be emotionally independent. That's not a goal of marriage. A uh, goal of marriage is to of course have your own autonomy. It's of course to have you know, some forms of self-reliance, but uh, in marriage, you know, you're, you're giving up a lot of the me into an us. And so there has to be some dependence and trust in that other person in order to get to an us. You can't just be a stoic and be an us. The stoic is always going to be a me first. And I, I saw this one definition of marriage, you know, a uh, uh, to be married, you know, you must ask yourself the question as you're entering into it, is this the person I want to serve for the rest of my life? And of course, um, if that person is asking the same question of you, eventually you can begin to trust and rely, um, you know, on them uh, and some emotional support that they will give you. And of course, you you can um, vice versa. They can rely on you. Um, you know, and that's part of the, that's part of the goal makeup. So, uh, I would answer the man's question this way. I would say you, you need to be emotionally, um, dependent insofar as it would make the us emerge stronger, better, more emotionally intimate and generative. Um, if the us is, you know, it needs some emotional, um, dependence, but it also needs some emotional independence. So you don't want to be completely emotionally independent. Uh, that would mean you're basically an autonomous person. You you are not an us. So some dependence is good. Um, total dependence, of course, is not good. That'd be a codependent uh, relationship, and that wouldn't be that great. Right. And I, just thinking about the question, like, how do you make sure that you're not completely dependent on another person for your happiness, even in marriage, oh. as you said, like there has oh, yeah. to be this dependence, but my spouse is yeah. not responsible for making me happy. Can you do things no. to make me happy? Absolutely. But he, at the end of the day, isn't responsible for my own happiness. And you spoke no. of that contributive mm -hmm. side that I think is so, so I think important, that generative side of when mm -hmm. we look at relationships, especially before marriage, because this man isn't married. Um, when you're looking at a mm -hmm. relationship, are you just taking from the relationship or are you giving? Because if you're giving, there's going to be mm -hmm. value in your contribution. And hopefully the relationship is growing you as well. That will help you to kind mm -hmm. of see that you're not dependent on the relationship, but you're you're growing within it as well. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, the, the idea of is this a person I want to serve uh, for the rest of my life is a good place to start. Um, but sometimes to receive is, can be as difficult as, uh, you know, as to, to serve and to give. So um, sometimes we have to receive uh, in, in uh, relationships because, uh, um, you know, we, we, um, we, we're not going to be able to do it all. And of course we, you know, if, you know, we have to honor the gift that the other is to us. 
And so part of that is good, but you're right. Your husband is not responsible for your happiness. You're absolutely right about that. And, you know, I, I would have to hasten to add too um, that you're not responsible for his happiness, but together uh, you are in some sense contributing to each other's mm-hmm. happiness. And that's where the us uh, comes into play. I love that. I think that's a beautiful way to look at it, the significance of our contribution to each other's happiness. Father Spitzer, thank you so much for joining me today on Trending. If you want to find Father Robert Spitzer and his books, he's the president of the Magis Center and the author of countless books, including Finding True Happiness, which I highly recommend. We're posting a link on social media. You can also find him and his work at CredibleCatholic.com. That's CredibleCatholic.com. I'll be right back here on Trending in just a moment with Sheila Matthews to discuss the role of mental health health as it's on trial with the Michigan school shooter's mother who's on trial for manslaughter, not her son. He was already convicted back in December. It's an interesting case in that it discusses the role of mental health and pharmaceutical drugs. So joining me in just a minute is Sheila Matthews from the founder of Able Child. That's She's the founder of Able Child. We'll be right back. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Welcome back. I was following in the news the story the other day, a new trial going on. It, it intrigued me because you may remember back in 2021, there was a 15-year-old boy who killed four of his classmates and wounded six at the Michigan Oxford High School. And he was sentenced in December to life in prison without parole. But what intrigued me this week was that his mother is now on trial, Jennifer Crumbly, and she's on trial for a few things, ignoring his mental health needs, having known that he had access to a gun and not disclosing that when there seemed to be things that were off. And then also for refusing to take him home the day of the shooting when she was confronted by school administrators that he had violent drawings uh, there that were very concerning that same day. So joining me today to discuss this is Sheila Matthews. She's the founder of Able Child. Sheila, I want to see the positive in this story. And part of the reason why I pulled this up was to talk to you because we were recently discussing the role of pharmaceutical drugs and many of the school massacres we've seen over the last couple of decades. Where is the positive side in the story? What do you expect will or hope will be exposed to help make a change in how pharmaceutical drugs are impacting uh, children, especially boys today? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on again. I loved you. I love your show, and um, it's so inspiring. The beauty and the um, positive in here is that um, the problem is becoming more obvious, and when a problem becomes more obvious, you can get into the solution quicker. So, at this point, um, I would say the positive as of today, actually, our organization is working on some legislation that can really uh, hold the mental health industry and the psychiatric industry and the pharmaceutical companies accountable. 
And um, we just found out that in Tennessee, uh, because there was another mass killing there, um, that they just are having hearings, they just announced on the link between psychiatric drugs and mass shootings. And this is the first time I've been working on this wow. issue. For, for Yeah, it's amazing. Um, I've been working on this issue for 23 years. My son was seven when um, I was confronted with this coercion in the public school system mm -hmm. and the uh, misleading information that they were providing me as a parent. So I guess the good news is that, that unfortunately lives are being lost, but the good news is that parents are speaking out and the truth is coming out. I, I feel like truth is something that you cannot hold underwater for a very long time. It, it surfaces. And so I think that is how I could spin this horrible story into a positive. You enlightened me a couple months ago when I was listening to an interview of yours and you shared, and this is startling, that public schools or other government-funded schools receive an increase in government funding for each additional student they have on psychiatric drugs. Now, tying this to the story right now of Jennifer Crumley, who's the mother of the boy who killed the many children in Michigan at the Michigan-Oxford High School massacre, she her role is significant because we have this challenge, Sheila, for parents, where parents are being told, hey, your kid's misbehaving in school. Maybe you get that repetitive call-in, and then after a couple repeat incidents, they're being prescribed, well, maybe they should go on this particular type of drug. And your organization, Able Child, which you can find them at ablechild.org, uh, speaks to help parents in navigating other options, other diagnoses, really kind of getting to the bottom of it because we're seeing a lot of uh, side effects, both in terms of incidences such as these, but also with kids just struggling in their day-to-day -day and into adulthood where they're floundering even when using these drugs on an interpersonal level, even if they're potentially achieving a great academic output? Well, the drugs themselves, these psychiatric drugs, are created to, to interfere with your thought process. So uh, our natural state is to um, think freely, creatively when we have a problem, um, especially as we're growing, is to try to solve them with different solutions. Adults, as you're a young mom, when your child's going in the wrong direction, you pick your child up and put your child in, in a correct direction. They're heading for a cliff. They're heading off the, the stool. And your tendency is to reach out and grab that child. So... I think that um, these drugs are known to interfere with the thoughts. So you have children that are developing and growing and learning how to, to I guess, channel their thoughts and educate themselves through life. And then when you throw this mix of psychiatric drugs in their minds, that are known to increase risk of suicide and hostility and violence that um, you no longer recognize your own child. 
so with this particular case, we don't have the records of the child. Um, and this is a trend that happens throughout these mass shootings, um, the, as I like to call them, these mass killings. And um, so we don't have the documentation. And then the media leaks out bits and pieces of the findings of these records. So we really can't make a judgment at this point as to what this boy was confronted with in his early education. Mm -hmm. Those are facts that we really need to see. Uh, and then the school, you know, claiming that the child, you know, that the mother refused to take their child home I find that to be hard to believe because if a child is creating violence and the school is so concerned about the child, the school has the right to ask the child to leave and the parents to pick up, pick up their child for that particular day until they can come to a solution. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not a long-term solution, but I almost have never heard of a school saying a parent refused to leave their child, you know, take their child home. Uh, I find that to be hard to believe. And they also, the school had an opportunity to call in the lawmakers. If this mm -hmm. child was a harm to himself or anybody else, they had the ability to call in the law enforcement agencies. They, you know, they've done it in the past. Um, so I'm a little not understanding their role in this and then kind of blaming the mom mm -hmm. for everything. Um, this is unfortunate. I, you know, the boy appears to have, you know, been convicted, as you said, um, but they're advocating um, that the parent needs to be tried for a contributing factor. And I would argue that, in the mass shooting in Parkland in Florida, uh, the behavioral health vendor that saw that child and determined that child, Nicholas Cruz, was not a harm to himself or anybody else, went on to kill multiple amounts of people. So that behavioral health vendor never was held to account. They didn't lose any of their contracts and they were not liably held responsible. And so the same standard doesn't be to be being equally handed out to this parent. There are bad parents out there. Uh, there's neglectful parents out there. But that's a different. That's a different issue. You know, it doesn't appear that the records indicated that Child Protective Service was involved. Right. right. They, they don't seem to have evidence mm -hmm. to substantiate this claim against this parent. You can't, you pray and hope that your child's going to be a productive part of society. Um, and it's tragic when a child kills themselves or kills somebody else. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it's a little hard to blame the parents for their child's act. Yeah. 
It is interesting. Again, there's responsibility with a 15-year-old child, but there there seems to be a lot more going on in this particular case. And I was interested to hear, as you mentioned a moment ago, Sheila, that there are hearings for the first time in Tennessee right now on the link between psychiatric drugs and mass shooting. I think these are a couple trials to just be aware of. I know it's kind of, it really is a tough topic, but we're seeing this tie-in as you so eloquently tie together of the role of pharmaceutical drugs, the impact of children currently, and on their future. Futures. So please check out the work of Able Child. Uh, they're doing great work really exposing this link and also helping to find resources for parents. One of those resources I'll throw out there is you have a sample letter. We talked about it just a couple weeks ago here on Trending, and I'll link to that episode where you joined me to the Hatch Amendment and a letter for if you're a parent and you want to be cautious of what your kid is being exposed to, including various types of evaluation and odd and unhealthy questions surrounding mental health and suicide. You can actually put that on file to protect your child in the public school system. So we'll post a link to that online. Sheila Matthews' website is ablechild.org. That's ablechild.org. Thanks so much for being with us today, Sheila. Today I'm trending with Tim Ray. I have a question I want to take in just a moment about navigating those single years and just how difficult it can be. But first... Can you believe it? Lent is around the corner. I'm inviting you to make your Lenten journey with your parish this year with Father Rocky's Lenten Lessons on the Mass, sponsored in part by the National Center for Padre Pio. These free daily videos are bite-sized explorations of prayers and postures that will transform your perspective on the Mass and re-energize your parish community. Pray, fast, and serve these 40 days with 40 lessons and with Father Rocky's weekly Eucharistic encounters. Sign up and share with your family at relevantradio.com slash Lent. That's relevantradio.com slash Lent. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. There was a question that came in from Brittany that is a resounding question I'm hearing a lot right now. She said, I'm 35 and single. All my friends are getting married, already got married, or pregnant. Now my sister is pregnant, and she's always been the prettier, more successful, and stable one in the family. I feel like I've just always been the single screw-up. She said, no one I date ever sticks around for long, but I'm trying. She said, how are you able to deal with being happy for other people without being incredibly hurt and upset that things are not working out for you? Should everyone else's, quote, good news is starting to crush me, and I just want to be happy for people. These are, this is a great question. How are you able to deal with being happy for other people without being hurt by that longing for the season in life that you want to be in that you're just, you're not finding, you're in? I, I get this. My husband and I, I got married in, uh, I was, I think, almost 28-ish, and when we got married, I spent a lot of years, we dated longer than ever, so I wasn't single, but I wasn't married, and I wanted to be married, and I wanted to have children, and I remember seeing, I was also one in high school who had a lot of older friends, so I had already been through this season of all my friends, not long after high school, for me, had already gotten married and started having kids, and went through the season where a lot of my cousins and friends had done that, and I wasn't in that group, and it was an adjustment of, hey, this is what I would like to, but not yet need the man, need need the right season in life. And then I saw as I went through this long dating season with my husband, don't recommend it. It's not what we wish, but it was just part of our personal journey. Uh, what ends up happening is 
I saw all of my friends then get married. Again, this new round of friends. I saw all of these different people that I had mentored for years get married who seemingly to me were like far behind me in years. And again, time closes that gap. And then I saw them all having children. And it was difficult. It was difficult. I actually remember one season I would be going to mass by myself on Sundays and I go to mass and I would just sort of dread seeing some of those couples that I'd known for years and were so excited to say hello because I was just kind of struggling with the place I was at at in life. Uh, They had a lot of things that I wanted and not that I wasn't jealous, but what was difficult was kind of the questions they would ask. Oh, are you still stating so-and-so? Oh, you know, you guys talking about getting married. Those were the questions that started to get difficult. But flip it on its back. If you're not dating someone, the question that gets really difficult to hear over and over again is, are you seeing anyone? Do you like anyone? Have you been on, on any dates lately? The questions that you hear from people when you catch up, whether it's family or friends, seem to always revolve around whether or not you're single. And it already pricks at a wound that is so poignant for many in that season that is so difficult. So the question is, how are you able to deal with being happy for other people without being incredibly hurt and upset that things aren't working out for you? I think that the first the first mindset shift is making sure you change your happiness. Is my ability to thrive in life dependent upon my marital status or upon whether or not I have children? And I think that that's the beginning point, because if that is the place that is whether or not in the day-to-day, moment-to-moment experience, if that is the determining factor of whether or not you're happy, happy, something more is going on that needs to be addressed. And I challenge you to start working on how can I flourish in the state in life I'm in. I'll give you an example. One of my friends, very similar, she's in her mid-30s, thought she would have had a spouse and babies by now. She doesn't. So she decided, okay, I'm embracing now. This is where I'm at. I'm not going to sit here and be upset. I may or may not ever get married. I don't know. But what I do know is that this is currently God's plan for me, and I'm living in a state of grace. I'm chasing after him. And so those are two of the tips. Are you living in a state of grace, and are you truly discerning God's will, or are you following your own path? So that's a great place to start. And then second, she went, okay, I'm a teacher, and I'm really not happy with the location I'm living in. And I'm really not happy with the salary I'm making. So she went back to school, got her master's, increased what she was making, moved to a different school district, ended up buying a house, and she's in a place that she is much more content. Rather than sitting and waiting around for life circumstances to change, she said, okay, what are those things that would help me in being motivated and peace-filled in the current seat in life I'm in? And that helped her because she had something that she was working toward. She had something to share about that she was proud of versus before she wasn't proud of the state in life she was in. She kind of just felt like, well, this is what it is. And I think that's important. Not that you have to go and make some big life change, but you can be proud of what you're working on, whether it be a project, whether it be something you're volunteering on. Maybe it's something fun you did where you traveled with a friend because you have that freedom. But that helps you to be able to enjoy and celebrate your friend's good news as well, rather than ruminating in your own news that you feel like you don't have to share or that you don't like the news you have to share. So it's a tough season, but it's one that we allow ourselves to sit in 
and it's one we're called to find joy in, no matter what our state and life is in. Up next, Family Roser Across America with Father Rocky. This is Timory from Trending with Timory. What was that? Did you say something? Oh, okay, yes, yeah, sorry, I was just, oh, I was distracted. My guest on Trending Tuesday is Nir Isle. He's the author of the book, Indistractable. And do you ever have the feeling of what just happened? Well, he'll join me to discuss how you can prevent distraction. And actually, there is a faith component to this. Growing in virtue, such as prudence and temperance. So join me daily, 6 p.m. Central, on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.